Good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Title of this sermon is The Arrival of the Messianic Age. It's kind of a mouthful, but hopefully it'll all make sense. Um, And if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, then please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Matthew, the apostle, writes this. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this word. We pray, God, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to receive that which is in your word, that we would understand it. There's so much in this text that sometimes we pass right over it and we don't even notice. I pray, Lord, that you will bring those things that are underneath, that you would bring them to the surface and that we would marvel at you. I pray, Lord, you would remove me as much as possible from this so that I don't mess your word up. Pray, Lord, that just all of us would... Uh, grow in conformity to Jesus, that, that your word would have that effect in us, and that if there's anybody that doesn't know you, that you would uh, call them into your, your kingdom, into your marvelous light, that you would save them today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Please uh, have a seat. Sometimes you come to a text of the Bible that signifies the fulfillment of something huge. And this morning we come to such a text To kind of prepare our minds for it, consider Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul the Apostle said this. He said, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive receive adoption as sons. Now, that's all Jesus did, and my reason for bringing it up is that first line, when the, time to, when the time came to completion, or some translations, when you had the fullness of the time. Our text this morning is about this very thing. When the time came to completion, God did send his son to redeem us. But that poses the question, when what time came to completion? The answer is found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, where God made a prophecy over 500 years before the time of Christ. He said that from the time that Jerusalem would be ordered to be rebuilt back then until the arrival of the Messiah, you would have a period of 483 years. He said there would be two periods, uh, uh, seven seven-year periods, which would be 49 years, and 62 seven-year periods, which would be 434 years. You add those together, 483 years. So that's very specific. It says from the time that an order is made to rebuild Jerusalem, the clock begins, and it will be exactly 483 years, and then the Messiah should be here. His work should begin. Well, when did the clock start? 457 BC, the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes I, allowed Ezra to go back to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding. So if you count 483 years from 457 B.C., you end up in the year 2627 A.D. Jesus was born in 4 B.C. 
John chapter 3, verse 23 says he began his ministry at 30 years old. Add 30 years to 4 BC, where do you end up? 26, 27 AD. In fact, Luke chapter 3, verse 1 says John the Baptist started baptizing folks in the Jordan River in the 15th year of Emperor Tiberius, which was 26 AD. So my point is, the completion of the time came. Daniel said the Messiah is going to show up in a specific year, and he did. Okay, He was born before this, but he shows up and starts his ministry exactly when he's supposed to, when the fullness of the time had come. Over 500 years in advance, the Old Testament predicted the very year he would show up and usher in the Messianic age. Now, it just so happens in that very year, in that very moment, that is what our text is recording. That's why I'm opening up this way. Our text is recording what that prophecy said would happen. It's recording the fulfillment of it. And in so doing, this text signifies the beginning of something big. And so that's my point of the text, or not my point, the point of the text is this. The baptism of Jesus inaugurated the Messianic age. And I've used this word before. You have inaugurate, you have consummate. Inaugurate just means it starts it. It begins. The hoped-for age of the Messiah begins at this moment with the baptism of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? I say that because in this one event, this one single event, contains numerous elements of cosmic significance occurring from two locations, earth and heaven. I'm going to repeat that. The baptism of Jesus inaugurates the Messianic age because this one event contains numerous elements of cosmic significance occurring from two locations, earth and heaven. Earth with the baptism, heaven with God anointing Jesus. Now you might feel what I just said there was over the top, but I think by the end you'll see that it's impossible to exaggerate just how significant this event is. Matthew has already showed us in the first two chapters very significant things about Jesus. That Jesus is God in the flesh, that he's born of a virgin, that he's the Messiah, he's the son of David, he fulfills hundreds of prophecies. We saw that he even fulfills the history of Israel itself because his own life mirrors the history of Israel and its greatest prophets, prophets like Moses. Our text this morning is just going to continue more of the same. It's going to show us more of the same. It's going to continue with these themes. Now, when you do a fast reading of this text, it just looks like a simple event. Jesus shows up, and he gets baptized by John the Baptist. But when you consider what's actually happening here, and what's actually being said, and the things that are occurring both on earth and in heaven at the exact same time, this becomes much bigger than it at first appears. This event, as I said, inaugurates the Messianic Age. It brings us to the time that the prophets had been predicting for all those centuries. So, let's dive into the text and let's take a look. I said that this one event contains these numerous elements of cosmic significance at two locations. Location number one, earth, the baptism of Jesus. Let's take a look. Look at verse 13 with me. Matthew writes this. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So, putting this back in its context, multitudes had already come to be baptized by John, to start over as really a new Israel, to, be, to start over as a reconstituted Israel. They had come. That's now been accomplished. John had made straight the path of the Lord, so now it was time. John also rebuked the, the pretentious, presumptuous religious leaders of Israel. They assumed they were righteous and needed no baptism. And John said, no, you guys are a brood of vipers. So he made it clear. He denounced the leaders. So he baptized the faithful. He denounced the leaders. It's now time. 
He let everyone know that the axe is laid at the root of the tree. It's about to come down. One greater than myself is coming. One after me. One who will not baptize with water, but will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, then we read verse 13, and he finally shows up. When it says, Jesus came, in the Greek it uses the word that it used of John the Baptist in verse 1. Verse 1. It means to arrive, to appear on the scene. It conveys this idea that something of significance is happening. Some appointed time is being fulfilled. Like, boom, here he is, right? So John appeared, verse 1, to set the stage. Now the stage has been set. For who? For the Messiah. So now the Messiah appears to take the show from here, right? That's what this word conveys. It tells us that Jesus came all the way from Galilee. Uh, Again, we could read that fast. That is a 70-mile journey on foot. And he was alone. There's nobody with him. He had no disciples yet. Uh, if you think about it, Jesus spent his first 30 years of human life in obscurity in an obscure place called Nazareth, where he did an obscure job. Think about that for a second. God became flesh and then lived the most unnoticeable life possible for 30 years. He lived among us as one of us, as a normal dude, okay, just without sin. He really did come down to live life just as one of us. Well, now it was his time. Now that year that Daniel said was going to come, it's here. He can't stay in Nazareth any longer. Now it's time. That's why this starts when he's 30. Okay, He has to fulfill this prophecy, the completion or fullness fullness of the time has come. Yet when Jesus shows up, think about it. He's got no disciples yet. He's done no miracles. He's got nothing to where he'd have a reputation. No reputation precedes him. Nobody's saying, look, it's Jesus when he shows up. They would assume he's a nobody, just like everybody else. But John the Baptist sees him, and he knows something's different. In fact, John gets stopped in his tracks. He knows now that this guy has come, because this is the one who comes and brings the better baptism. John now knows his ministry's coming to an end. Jesus shows up, and John realizes that this guy, he's different. He's different from all the rest. The rest have come to confess their sins and to seek forgiveness, but not Jesus. He has no sin. So this whole thing bewilders John. When Jesus shows up to, quote, be baptized by him, end quote, this is going to bewilder him. Now, for Jesus to show up to be baptized, that means he walked into the water, walked right up to John and said, John, baptize me. Now, we know that John knew he was the Messiah because we'll see this in the next verse. John right away says, no, I can't baptize you, because he knows who he is. Now, how John knows, we don't know. Maybe his mother, Elizabeth, told him what the Lord revealed to her about the baby in Mary's womb. Maybe Jesus and John, since they were cousins, hung out a few times, and John would have already known. You know, the Gospel of John tells us John knew for sure, because the Holy Spirit, in a sense, was hovering over Jesus. All we know is when Jesus steps in that water, John the Baptist knows this is the one I was telling everybody about. This is the Messiah. This is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the only guy in the world that doesn't need my baptism, and yet he's here asking me to get baptized. And so because of this, he refuses at first. Look at verse 14. He says, no. It says, but John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? Now, there's a lot of irony here. John would not baptize Pharisees and Sadducees because they were unworthy of his baptism. But he won't baptize Jesus because the baptism is unworthy of Jesus. It's kind of interesting. 
There's no better way to show the difference between the self-appointed fake leaders of Israel and the true leader of Israel, Jesus Christ. Now, when it tells us John tried to stop him, in the Greek, this is in the imperfect tense, which all that means is it was a continual thing. He was continuing to try to stop him. This was not a two-second conversation. John could not get his head around this, and he's debating Jesus for some time about this. And Matthew really just gives us the summary of that. Now, he's going to tell Jesus in this summary why he does not want to baptize him. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? In other words, he's acknowledging that, hey, I may be a prophet, but I'm a sinner. You have no sin. How? I need you to baptize me. How could you ask me, a sinner, to baptize you, the one with no sin? How can you come into this river and submit yourself to a baptism of repentance and forgiveness when you have nothing for which you need to repent or seek forgiveness? Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. And honestly, it doesn't make sense, does it? When you think about it, it makes no sense, at least not at first. But Jesus is going to press back against John on this. Look at the first part of verse 15. It says this, Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when you take Jesus's statement and John's statement, they're parallel to each other. John has got the negative one. Jesus has the positive one. John says no. Jesus says yes. John tries to stop him. Jesus says, allow it for now, right? And, and the key word there is now. Like, now's the point of time. Yeah, you wouldn't have had to allow this any other time, but allow it now. Now is the point of time for this. It has to be now. Okay, so that's what he says. John says, no. Jesus says, allow it. And then John gives a reason. You should baptize me. But then Jesus is like, no, I need you to baptize me because, quote, this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a purpose to this. What Jesus is saying is this has to happen. And I like the way the CSB puts it when it says this is the way, not just because I like the Mandalorian, but it, it really is fitting. I mean, in Greek, you could translate it as it is fitting for us, but that just means this is the way. This is the way that we fulfill righteousness here. This is what we are supposed to do. Now, it's very interesting what's at play here. Jesus did not say, hey, John, I'm a sinner too. I need to confess and be forgiven. I'm just like the rest of you. That's how the world tries to see Jesus. No. That's not what he says because Jesus is perfect. He is without sin. He is not being baptized for the same reason everyone else was. Instead, he says something that has puzzled people for a very long time. He says, John, we need to do this. You and me, it's fitting for us. Now, this is the way for us. Meaning, this baptism at this moment is only for Jesus and John. There's a lot of emphasis on this word us. Only they can do this. Only Elijah and the Messiah could do what's about to happen. And when I say Elijah, I mean the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is a one-time thing. This is unique. This is not like the other baptisms. And there's a reason they must do this. Jesus says this, meaning me being baptized by you, this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? That's what puzzles people. But I really don't think it's that puzzling. If we read Matthew carefully, we can figure out what he means here. There's two words that tell us what this means. The first word is fulfill. The second word is righteousness. Let me focus on the first. Matthew has already been using the word fulfill a lot. 
okay? He's told us what it means. He uses this word to show us that Jesus fulfills many detailed prophecies. He also uses it to show us that Jesus fulfills types and patterns, like I've been saying. Like he's a new Moses, a new Israel, a new everything that's good. He's fulfilling the very history of Israel. So Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He fulfills prophecies. He fulfills people and events and peoples. I mean, it all points to him, right? He's the fulfillment of it all. And so ultimately, what, what, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, this is just one more part of that. This is one more part of it. Us doing this fulfills something. And he tells us it fulfills all righteousness, which again is something that the Old Testament points to the need for. And it's not fulfilling some righteousness. It's fulfilling all righteousness, meaning there are certain things that must be fulfilled in order for us to say this is all righteousness or complete righteousness. And there's only one person who could do that, and that's Jesus. But only the prophet that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah can do the baptism to set the stage for Jesus to then go do this. That's why Jesus said it takes both of them here. This is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, that's the word fulfill. They're fulfilling the Old Testament in some way. And then the second word is righteousness, okay? Matthew uses this word a lot, and it usually means keeping God's standards, okay? That's what it means to be righteous. God's standards are his law, first five books of the Bible, and then everything the prophets revealed afterwards. The prophets revealed more and more, and Israel was responsible to obey and live according to all of it. John the Baptist is the final prophet. He is a new revelation, right? He's the final prophet of the Old Covenant era, so that makes his baptism another commandment. Okay, so if Jesus has to fulfill all the commandments of God, both in the law and the prophets, and John brings this new command as a prophet, then for Jesus to be righteous, to be obedient to God, he does have to undergo this baptism. Even though he's not confessing or repenting of anything, he still is obeying the command, right? Just like he had to be circumcised, even though he was without sin. The point is Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. He has perfectly kept God's commands, and he will continue to do so. Now, when it comes to him fulfilling all righteousness, this is something only he can do. But I do, because sometimes we could get confused, right? Sometimes the Bible does say regular people are righteous. And I know we are very accustomed to saying no one's righteous, no, not one, only Jesus. And that's true depending on how you're using the word righteous. Matthew already told us Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, was a righteous man. So what does that mean? right? Obviously, he wasn't perfect, but he did try to keep the law. He tried to live according to the prophets. And when he sinned, he would, in faith, go to the temple and by grace be forgiven by God. And so a person can be called righteous by living that way, just relatively so, okay? So yeah, normal people can be relatively righteous according to the Bible, but they can't fulfill all righteousness. That's the key here is the word all. Jesus is different. He's not fulfilling a general righteousness. He's fulfilling all righteousness. And no one other than him can do this. To fulfill all righteousness means to keep every single one of God's commands all the time. That means to never once fail to do the things God tells us to do. Every positive command he gives, you do it when he tells you to do it. It also means to never once do the things God prohibits. Okay, you're always staying away from the bad and you're always doing the good and you're doing this all the time and you're only thinking it all the time. Only a perfect person without sin could fulfill all righteousness. And by the way, salvation requires all righteousness. Okay, so Jesus is the only one who can do this. 
So when you put these two words together, righteousness and fulfillment, Jesus is pretty straightforward then what this means. That Jesus has to fulfill not only the law of Moses perfectly, but also the additional revelation given to God through the prophets, which includes John's baptism. Now, we saw last time this baptism is how God kind of starts over with Israel. He brings them into his presence again through the very Jordan River that he originally brought them through. And if Jesus is going to be the model Israelite, he himself must also pass through those same waters. There's a lot of reasons he has to get baptized here that have nothing to do with repentance. And forgiveness. And again, this, this fits with the theme that we've been seeing in Matthew. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel itself. So just like God called Israel out of Egypt, he called Jesus out of Egypt. Just like um, God, just like Israel was baptized into Moses or through Moses into the Red Sea, Jesus is now being baptized, you know, through a prophet. And then it's no accident that right after Israel came out of the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness for how many years? Forty. How many big temptations did they fail? Three, right after John's baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness 40 days and overcomes three temptations to sin. The point is, he is the perfect embodiment of Israel and is fulfilling Israel. And if Israel has to go through this baptism, then Jesus has to go through this baptism. That's also part of the fulfilling all righteousness. So all of that collectively shows us then why he has to be baptized and how with these two and Jesus being baptized here, it will fulfill all righteousness. It keeps with God's commands, all of them, and it continues the idea that Jesus is the embodiment of Scripture itself. He fulfills the storyline of Israel. He has to identify with them as their representative through this baptism. And by the way, in so doing, he also identifies not just with Israel, but every sinner through this baptism. And I'll bring that back um, at the end, okay? So that's Jesus's fast answer to John. He made it clear. This has nothing to do with sins or seeking forgiveness. It's all this other stuff. Once the baptizer, John, realizes this, then we read this in verse 15. It says this, then John allowed him to be baptized. See, John realized this baptism is now how the baton is going to be handed from the prophets to the Messiah, how the era of the Messiah is going to begin. And there's one other thing that this also showcases. In the Old Testament, kings were usually anointed by who? Prophets. Usually they were anointed with oil. So Samuel anointed David. Elijah anointed some of the kings of Israel. So this is like Jesus' anointing as king. But here's the problem. He's got to be anointed with something different than oil because he's the Messiah, okay? And I'm not talking about water here. We're going to see what he's anointed with in a moment. But you have to ask yourself, even though John has this role as the Elijah-like prophet and he's baptizing Jesus, he's, in a sense, coronating him as king and sort of anointing him, the full anointing has to come from above. Because what did the oil signify in the Old Testament? Anybody know? The Holy Spirit. And so this king isn't going to be baptized by the symbol. He's not going to be anointed by the symbol. He's going to be anointed by the real thing itself. And who is the only one who can anoint someone with the Holy Spirit? God. Only God himself can anoint this king. This king cannot be anointed with oil. He must be anointed with what it pointed to all along, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. But who can pour out the Spirit of God? Can a mere prophet like John? No. Only God himself can do this. So given that the Messiah is both God and man, it's very interesting here, his coronation then is going to make use of both God and man. You're going to have the man, John, baptizing him, but you're going to have God in heaven anointing him, 
anointing him. And by the way, anybody know what the word Messiah means? Anointed one. He's the anointed one. Anointed with what? The fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see. That's why I'm saying with this one event, you have a bunch of things happening in two locations, but in one event. And so we've seen what happens on earth. Jesus and John get in a little debate. John baptizes Jesus. This has to happen. Now God's going to take it from here. And this is where we see a whole bunch of significant things. And so let's turn to the second location of this one event, heaven. Okay, Verse 16 begins like you would expect. It begins like any other baptism. It says, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. And if you don't want to drown, if you get baptized, you're going to immediately come up from the water. This is what happens with any baptism. And by the way, if Jesus has to come up out of the water, what does that tell you about baptism? Is it a sprinkling? You don't come up from a sprinkle. Is it a pouring a cup over your head? No, you don't come up from a pouring of a cup. It's full immersion. That's what the word even means. And so Jesus himself comes up immediately out of the water, right? Just like we did when we all got baptized. To me, it just blows my mind that so many, I would say, even faithful denominations insist on man-made baptism rather than what the scripture says. This is a kind rebuke to them. But Jesus coming out of the water is the only normal part of this baptism. Because what happens next is not normal at all. In fact, what happens next never happens except this one time. That's why I'm saying Jesus' baptism is a one-time deal, never to be repeated. So what is this unique thing? Well, Jesus comes up out of the water, and then this is what it says in the next part of verse 16. It says, the heavens suddenly opened for him. Yeah, heaven didn't rip open when I got baptized, and it didn't when you got baptized. But when Jesus, the God-man, the King of Israel, the embodiment of Scripture, when he gets baptized, heaven opens up. And in fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, which describes the same event, says that heaven was being torn open. Now, Matthew just tells us it was suddenly open, same thing. And that torn, I want you to keep that in your mind because that is what happened. Heaven was torn open. Okay? And this was done, quote, for him. This was only for Jesus. The curtain that separates our existence here on earth from the very presence of God, it was torn open for Jesus. And I'm going to come back to the significance of it tearing open later. Now, what happens after heaven's torn open is also unique. The rest of verse 16 says this. It says, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. So heaven opened up so that God could come down. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. Now there is a contrast in the Greek language here with the word ascend and descend. Jesus ascends from the water on earth and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and they meet in a sense. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And so what you have is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he's taken on flesh, therefore he's on the earth. And so his part of this is from the earth, but then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is poured out from heaven, but who pours him out? The Father, the first person of the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian event, okay? This is a Trinitarian event. All three persons of the Trinity are doing something at the same time, and that doesn't happen that often in the visibility of people. That's letting us know something huge, something significant is happening here, okay? Something big, and in the next verse, then the Father's going to speak. So he's going to declare for everyone to hear what this all means, 
And so there are some big things that are happening in, in this text. And I'm going to get into the, the Old Testament background of stuff in a little bit, but I need to make a theological point before I make like a textual point. I want you to note theologically the doctrine of God, right? I want you to note that the three persons, all three persons of the Trinity, are simultaneously at work in this passage. The Bible teaches us there is only one God. But that one God exists eternally and always as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an amazing mystery, but the Bible makes it clear it is true. Well, because it's a mystery, people get frustrated and they want to take the mystery out of it and say it's something other than what it is. And a very common heresy that the ancient church had to deal with, it's called Sabellianism, and then we have to deal with it today. Today, we just renamed it modalism. That's where people will try to say, okay, hold on. You got the one God, but he's not three persons. He's three modes. And so, I don't know, you young folks, you're not going to get this unless you watch vintage cartoons. But people my age, <clears throat> if you remember the Transformers cartoons, you had the triple changers, like Astro Train. He was a locomotive, a rocket ship, and a robot. But he was never all three at the same time, okay? And so the idea with modalism is God is just God. He's not the Father, he's not the Son, he's not the Holy Spirit. But when he does things that the Bible says are of the Father, then in that moment he's in the mode of the Father. But then that same God changes and stops being in that mode and is then in the mode of the Son when he's doing stuff on earth or saving us. And then when he's working invisibly in the church, he's not in the mode of the Son anymore. He's in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so he's not the one God that's three persons eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet our text just crushes that, doesn't it? Right Here in this one scene, you have all three at the same time. You have the Son ascend from the water, the Spirit descend from heaven, and you're going to have the Father speak from heaven. You're going to see the same thing in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen gets killed. Before he dies, he's filled with the Spirit. So there's the Spirit. He looks up, he sees the Father, and then he sees the Son standing at the, the right side. Modalism is a heresy, okay? It just is, okay? The Bible shows us you have one God who always exists as three eternal persons. Now, you might be wondering, if this is an ancient heresy, why do we have to worry about it today? Well, it's because there's nothing new under the sun, and what I'm going to tell you is there's more people who spout this stuff today than back then. Okay, there's a very large denomination in our country called the United Pentecostal Church. You have a very big platformed preacher named T.D. Jakes who preaches this stuff. Okay? And you've got all these churches that call themselves Oneness Pentecostal Churches. In fact, we, we have a member of our church here who's in dialogue with one of these guys each week trying to save him from this heresy. Okay? And, and by the way, my brother-in-law in Indiana, some of his in-laws have been captured by this deceit. And so he's trying to sway them back. And he's in an ongoing debate with one of the pastors of this type of religious cult. And it's not just people I know. Okay? When I was, so this goes back a ways, when I was at BBC as a young man in my like, teens, late teens, um, I was a representative on the Christian club there. And there was a guy who was a oneness Pentecostal who tried to infiltrate our club and get us to deny the Trinity. His dad uh, was a pastor of a church up here and was preaching that. Uh, and then there was another time not long after that, I went to see Prince of Egypt in the movie theater at the mall. So again, that dates this. Uh, me and my future brother-in-law went and saw it. And when we came out of the movie and were walking towards the, the exit of the mall, I ran into a buddy from college, a Christian buddy, and we started talking about God. 
And then some random dude comes up and starts preaching this stuff. And of course, we shut him down pretty quick. But here's some random guy just coming after us, trying to get us to deny the Trinity. Myself and Thomas, we, we flew to Emmanuel's graduation in Waco, Texas in 2007. And on the way back, <clears throat> we had a layover in Phoenix. And some dude came up and tried to push this stuff on us. Okay, It happens all the time. And when I was new in the Army, my chaplain supervisor was a oneness Pentecostal. And so, and in the army, they just say it's general Protestant service. So everybody who's not a Catholic would show up to the service not knowing the difference from one chaplain to the next and would hear this guy preaching this heresy. My point is, it's everywhere. And like all cults, they're very evangelistic and they like to go after Christians. Why? Because most of us are confused about the Trinity. And so then they say, hey, I can unconfuse you about it. Just don't believe it. You know, and that's how, how they try to sway people. That's why Satan has these guys all over the place. Listen, the Bible makes it clear God is one God that's eternally three persons. If you reject that, you're not saved. You're not saved. That's how important this is. And so it's a very subtle thing that they're doing. It's subtle, it's evil, it's dangerous. And so that's why I went on this little rabbit trail just to tell you this text can help guard us from that heresy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in one scene at one time, each doing unique work distinct from each other. That is meant to show you that modalism's a heresy. So with that theological point now made, far more importantly, we need to get to the, the, the point the text is, is trying to make, okay? Which is, what's the point that the, the three persons of the Trinity... Uh, or, how do I say this? The three persons of the Trinity in this text all being here, it's meant to show us how important this event is. From an Old Testament standpoint, the baptism of Jesus is an event containing numerous elements of cosmic significance. As I said, heaven tears open. The Holy Spirit descends in a way that's never happened before. And you might be thinking, well, in the Old Testament, doesn't the Holy Spirit gift certain people to do certain things? Yes, but not like this. He's never, heaven's never been opened, and then he descends down on a person fully. And the scripture is going to make it clear that Jesus gets the Holy Spirit in fullness, not in any type of partial way, okay? And after Jesus gets the Holy Spirit in fullness, then the Father's going to speak in an audible voice. Now, do you guys know how many times the Father actually speaks from heaven in an audible voice? Less times than I have fingers on my hand. Most of the time, God speaks through representations like a burning bush or dreams and visions, but not just his voice directly and audibly. So the fact that that's happening here, and it's so rare, also signifies this event is huge. It's unique. It's filled with cosmic significance. Now, I mentioned earlier that prophets anointed kings with oil, but the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would be anointed with something much greater. He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. So look at the text again to get back to it. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. So right here when it says he saw, it's telling us that Jesus saw this happening. But in John's gospel, it tells us John the Baptist saw it. In Luke's gospel, it uses language that conveys that everybody saw it, okay? So Jesus saw it, the prophet saw it, and everybody saw it. This is a very public event. The crowd saw heaven open. The crowd saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. And this descending Holy Spirit on the Messiah is exactly what we should expect. We shouldn't just read this and say, oh, that's cute. No, you should ask, like, wait, why is the Spirit descending upon the Messiah in this way? Jesus receives the Holy Spirit in the fullest way that any human ever could. And the reason starts in Isaiah 11, verse 2. 
In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, the previous verse, verse 1, makes it clear that this is the Messiah. It's the stump of Jesse, which is a title for the Messiah. And then it tells us the Spirit of God will rest on him. Now, I'm leaving this up for a second because I want you to count with me. How many attributes does Isaiah 11, verse 2, attribute or ascribe to the Holy Spirit? He is the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Seven. Seven. Okay, that is not by accident in the Bible, especially in prophetic books and apocalyptic books. The number seven represents completion. They could have put more. Isaiah could have come up with more. He could have come up with less, but he stopped at seven to signify completion. That's not an accident. It's not an accident that in Revelation chapter one, verse four, it describes the Holy Spirit as what? The seven spirits before the throne of God. It's no accident that in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, when John sees the, 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 the lamb that was slain and the lion of Judah, it tells us that he is the one full with the seven spirits of God. Where's that number coming from? This is a throwback to Isaiah. And Isaiah's point is, it is the fullness of the spirit of God that is going to rest on this Messiah. Okay, And so this is going to be different than anybody else ever getting the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus has the full spirit of the Lord resting upon him displayed in these seven attributes okay, that are listed in Isaiah. The Messiah has such a unique ministry and purpose unlike anybody else's that he must be completely filled with the spirit. And he alone is completely filled with the spirit. You might say, well, I'm filled with the spirit. Yes, because he poured the spirit out on us, but we're not filled like he was. Okay, We're not. His is unique. We have what's called what? A down payment. That's what it says. We have a down payment. We have a seal. We'll get the full thing later. He had the full Holy Spirit right here. Okay. Now, what's interesting, though, so Isaiah tells us the Spirit of God in a full way is going to rest on Messiah. But God, through Isaiah, is going to also say the same thing of the servant of the Lord. Look at Isaiah 42.1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Now that's kind of interesting. Same language. The spirit of the God rests on the stump of Jesse, the Messiah, and the spirit of God will, be, will rest upon or be given to the servant of the Lord. Now, I spoke a few sermons, uh, I spoke about this a few sermons ago, that God promised in Isaiah that he was going to raise his special servant, the servant of the Lord, who would save the world. Now, at first, the servant was spoken of corporately. Israel as a nation was called the servant of the Lord. But Israel failed, so they can't save the world. They need to be saved too. So God then calls this individual Israelite, this individual exemplary Israelite who represents the whole. Now he's called the servant of the Lord. And again, that just shows us that Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. Just like they come out of Egypt and they go into exile and they return from exile and they pass through the wilderness and they enter the land through the Jordan River. Jesus does all that as the model Israelite, as the perfect Israelite. And just like Israel was the servant of the Lord, Jesus is the true servant of the Lord. He is the one that saves both Israel and the nations. Well, as the true servant who is going to save the world, he is going to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit rest upon him just as Isaiah 42, 1 says. Now, since Isaiah 
shows that the Messiah has the Spirit resting on him, and yet the servant of the Lord has the Spirit resting on him, what does that tell you? The Messiah and the servant of the Lord, same person. Same person. And, and, that, and the reason why he's showing us this is he's going to clear up a lot of confusion that Jews had about the Messiah. See, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because by Matthew showing us that the Holy Spirit descended on this guy, Matthew's telling them that the two different guys that, the, that Isaiah said the Spirit would rest upon, it's this one guy. He's one guy fulfilling two roles, two offices. And this, again, they're to be held together, and this corrects misconceptions that the Jews had. You've heard it said probably a hundred times that the Jews were expecting a conqueror that was going to destroy the Gentiles and then, you know, set up a kingdom over the world. Okay, that is true. That is what the Messiah does. But there's more to it than that is the point. If he has the Holy Spirit... That means he's also the servant of the Lord. So yes, there is a Messiah that will rule everything. God makes that clear in Isaiah and other places. He will conquer. But God also makes it clear in Isaiah that the servant who is the same person is one who dies. He dies in the place of sinners. He is the one crushed, not by us, but by God for our iniquities. Why? He's our substitute. And so the spirit resting fully on Jesus means that Jesus has to fulfill both roles. He is not only a conqueror. First, he must take care of the problem of sin in all of his people of all nations. That's what the servant does. Once he's done that, then yes, he can conquer. And he will just read Revelation 19. You'll see how he does it, okay? But my point is the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove in the view of everybody at this baptism is declaring all of that. That is all embedded in it. That's why I'm saying there's numerous elements of cosmic significance. Now for Jesus to fulfill, both, to fulfill the role of both Messiah and the servant requires what we just saw, this anointing. Now somebody might push back. They say, well, hold on. If Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is God, why does he need the power of the third person of the Trinity to fulfill his mission? Can't he just do it as God? He could, but that's not how this is supposed to go down. Jesus came to fulfill this mission as a man. That's how he saves humanity. Therefore, he voluntarily set aside his use of divinity so that he would do what he did for us as a man. But to do it as a man, he has to do it with the full power of the Holy Spirit working through him. And that's exactly what Jesus does, okay? Now, at this point, we've seen Jesus ascend from the water and the Holy Spirit descend on him. Signifies all that, but there's still more to come. Next, the Father speaks. And this, too, is going to be filled with all sorts of significance. Some of it's going to overlap with what we just saw with the Spirit. Some of it's going to be new. In verse 17, the Father declares the kingship of Jesus. He declares, it's, he declares it not from the mountaintops, but from heaven itself, from the throne itself. Look at verse 17. Matthew writes this. He says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, God isn't directly quoting Scripture, but he is alluding to the Scripture that he inspired, and he is fusing three important Old Testament pieces together here. Specific prophecies and promises are fused together in this short statement. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. First, let me point out a couple things about the statement itself. Notice that the Father is saying this in the third person. This is my beloved Son. That's for the sake of the crowd. Okay, He's letting them know that's who this guy is. 
Everything this sentence means, it's about this guy. Now, in Mark and Luke, it has them say it directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. So we just harmonize these. We put them together. God tells Jesus what Jesus already knows. But then for the sake of the crowd, God's telling the crowd, this is my beloved son. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is when God says, with whom I'm well pleased. In Greek, this statement conveys the idea that this is God's settled opinion about Jesus. He's not saying that at this moment I'm pleased with Jesus. He's saying that I always find this guy pleasing. He is always pleasing all the time. Jesus alone is the only one that God the Father will ever say this about. And we do know from the Gospel of John that in eternity past, the Father and Son loved each other perfectly forever and were well pleased with each other. But that is not what this is emphasizing. This statement's about the man Jesus. About the man Jesus. Now that Jesus has taken on the form of a man, he's taken on the form of humanity, the Father is saying that I am always and forever pleased with this perfect God-man. Okay? So it's a, it's a complete statement is what I'm getting at. Now the reason why he is so pleased with Jesus, can easily be seen in the three huge Old Testament prophecies and promises that are being linked together with this statement. First, God says, you are my son. I'm leaving out beloved there because that's going to be the third uh, thing that he's linking to this. But he's saying, you are my son. Obviously, that's true because Jesus is the eternal son of God. And it's true because Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived in the womb of the Holy Spirit, but that's not what he's emphasizing here. This is an allusion back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It's also an allusion back to Exodus 4.22. Let me start with the Exodus one. In Exodus, he calls Israel his firstborn son. Okay? And, and, and Jesus, as the perfect Israelite, represents the whole. And therefore, he is God's firstborn son because he is the true Israel. Well, I also mentioned before that God calls David's Sons, the, the kings of Judah, through the line of David, God calls them his son. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, God says this. Well, this is, what the, this is what the psalm says. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, we know that's ultimately about Jesus, but the word today makes it originally about the sons of David. God promised David that he was going to be a father to David's sons. Right, And so the day they get coronated as king, God says, today I have become your father. Today you are my son. Okay, So Israel was called the son of God, and the sons of David were called the son of God. They're not the son like Jesus is the son. right? But this is a status that God's bestowing upon them as his special people and as his special representative on earth. Okay, Well, Jesus the man was just coronated as king. And so he, who has always been the father's son in heaven, is now on this day declared the son as the king of Israel. In other words, where I'm going with this is this is a title of Messiah. The Messiah was said on a, in an earthly sense to be the son of God. Jesus is both, okay? He, by his very nature, is the son of God, always, because he's always been the son. But as the God-man, he's then declared the son of God or Messiah, the ruler on the day he's coronated. That is right here. Psalm 2 verse 7 is forever fulfilled in Jesus the moment he comes up out of those baptismal waters. And God is saying that, you are my beloved son. You're my son. He's declaring that there. Okay. So that's the first Old Testament idea in the Father's statement. The second idea 
is found in the statement where he says, with him I'm well pleased. I'm going to have us... Um, I'm going to have us look at Isaiah 42.1 again about the servant, and I'm going to focus us on one part of there. He says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, this statement, I delight in him, in the Hebrew of Isaiah, is translated as I am well pleased with him. This is the only guy that the father ever says, I'm well pleased with them. It's a prophecy. Whoever the servant of the Lord is, I'm going to be well pleased with him. I'm well pleased with them. And then Jesus comes out of those baptismal waters. The spirit falls on him just like he would on the servant. And then the father says, with whom I'm well pleased. Okay? So again, the father in the statement is also declaring, not only is Jesus the son, the Messiah, but he is also the servant of the Lord. And why does the servant of the Lord please the father so much? Because it's the job of the servant of the Lord to die in the place of sinners. And because he does that, God will be able to save people from every nation. He will be able to sprinkle every nation with his blood and save people through the work of the servant, which is what God has always wanted to do for his glory. Okay, and our benefit. And so because of that, God is very pleased with this, this servant of the Lord. Jesus is the one who pulls this off. Okay? That the Messiah would be God's son and the true Israel. And that the Messiah would also be the servant of the Lord. That's what God is saying here. Okay? And, and by the way, if you remember, the descending of the Holy Spirit also says those same two things. But I told you there's a third thing that's thrown into this from the Old Testament. And it's the atonement. Jesus is the atonement. Back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God commanded Abraham to take his only beloved son, Isaac, and to sacrifice him. That is the only place in the Bible before this where the words beloved and son go together. Okay? And again, to the Jews, word order matters. So the word beloved, that being added into this, like, wait, this is Psalm 2-7. Wait, this is Genesis 2-2, okay? That, that God foreshadowed, okay? So he told Abraham, you sacrifice your only beloved son. Now, of course, God didn't make him go through with this because this was to paint a picture that God would provide the perfect lamb and would remove the sins of the world, that God would sacrifice his own beloved son. And so Isaac was spared, but my point was, every Jew listening would immediately go back to this. Wait, wait, only beloved son, Isaac. And, and through Isaac, God promised atonement. He promised that God would provide the lamb. This is the lamb? This is the lamb of God? And in John, the Gospel of John, what does John the Baptist call Jesus at his baptism? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all here. It's all intertwined here. So all of this, just these two words, putting it all together, God's telling them, Jesus is all of this. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the servant of the Lord. He's the atonement, or what the Jews would call the akedah, um, which the fulfillment of, of Isaac. He's all of that. And so the Father's statement then pulls this all together. And the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus also declares all the same things. That's why I'm saying you can't just read through this so quick. But there's one more thing that this event indicates one more thing that it declares, okay? So you got the two things that the Spirit's descent shows. you got the three things the Father's statement shows. And then there's one more thing about the Holy Spirit being like a dove that adds a fourth thing to all of this. It paints the picture of the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Bible. The very first time he's mentioned is the second verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, "...the Spirit of God hovered over the waters." 
Now, the Hebrew word for hovered is a bird word. And I know that rhymes. I wasn't trying to do that. But it's the word for a bird flying or fluttering. Okay, it's not like a hoverboard. This is a bird word. And so the Holy Spirit in his very first mention ever was described, at least with the action of a bird. And he was hovering or fluttering over the waters. Here, Jesus is in the water. And a spirit flutters as a bird over the water as he descends upon Jesus. That is meant to call your mind back to the picture of the Holy Spirit hovering over the earth when it was being created. It calls us back to the old creation itself. And so if that's the first time we see this, and now here we see this for the second time, what is it signifying? If the first signifies the first creation, what does the second signify? The new creation. The second creation. The baptism of Jesus marks the beginning of the new creation itself. It comes in stages, but it marks the beginning of it. Look, all these word connections are intentional. I used to not understand that, but when I wrote my master's thesis and really dived into the way Jews understood Scripture in the first century, they made these kind of connections all the time because the Bible, every single word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All this stuff is meant to be tied together in Christ. And that's how big of an event this was. But I do know it's possible that you might think I'm really stretching on that last one over the fluttering and the dove and all that. So let me show you that I'm not stretching, that this is actually a direct connection in the book of Isaiah itself. Okay? The idea of the Spirit coming down on Jesus and a new creation itself. Okay? Remember how I told you to remember that the heavens were torn open. Okay? The heavens were torn open for this, this event. That's significant. Okay? At the end of the book of Isaiah, the last three chapters, beautiful three chapters, the book ends by Israel praying to God their deepest longing, the deepest prayer of their heart as a nation. And then God answers that prayer by making a bunch of promises. That's in Isaiah 64, 65, and 66. Now, what Israel specifically prays is that God would come and restore the land forever. He would restore the people forever. He would judge the wicked forever, but he would forever save those who repent. That's what they're praying. And it's very picturesque in how they pray it. Okay, it's beautiful. You read it and you long for those days. God then answers that longing by promising he's going to do all of that. He's like, I am going to do this. I am going to do that. And he gives very picturesque descriptions of how he's going to do it. And then he culminates in Isaiah 65, 17. And he says how he's ultimately going to do this. I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former sorrows will be no more. That's how God is going to answer this prayer of theirs. Okay. Well, here's my point. Israel lays out their heart in prayer. God answers that by saying, I will make a new creation. So you might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do then with Jesus' baptism? It comes down to the first words of their prayer. How did Israel begin their prayer? Isaiah 64, verse 1, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. They are asking God to tear the heavens open and there is only one time in the entire Bible where the heavens get torn open and God comes down, and it is right here. 
Now, in Revelation 6, the heaven will be torn open again when God destroys everybody, but that's not their prayer here, okay? So their prayer is for salvation, and heaven does get torn open, and God does come down. The Holy Spirit descends, and again, they start the prayer, open the heaven, come down, and God answers that prayer saying, I will, and it will be a new creation, okay? That's why I'm saying this is all connected. God promised that when he answers this, he'll bring a new creation. So heaven tears open. That means the new creation's announced through the Son of God, the King of Israel. You have the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. You have the one who brings atonement, who takes care of our sin once and for all. This is all being declared in a single event where the single prophet baptizes the single Messiah, Jesus, and this river on earth. And then God from heaven tells us what it all means. That is why... I said this one event contains numerous elements of cosmic significance from these two locations, heaven and earth. Nobody has ever been anointed like this. No king has ever been coronated like this. And John the Baptist here, as he passes the baton from the prophets to the Messiah, this scene encapsulates who the Messiah is, what the Messiah is going to do, and how he's going to do it. It shows us what the messianic age means. It's the start of the new creation. It's the beginning of salvation. It's the beginning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's all of that. It doesn't just mean conquering the world, okay? It's not just the conquering king, okay? First, he comes as the servant who removes our sins. That means atonement. And then after that, okay, he, when he removes our sins, he makes us new creations, Okay. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is a reality right now. The new creation is beginning now with you. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Okay. And so that all paves the way for the final new creation. When we have a new heaven and new earth, there needs to be new people to fill that new heaven and new earth. That's you. And it's through the work of Jesus Christ. So yes, the Messianic age inaugurates all this. It brings all of this to us. It paves the way for the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It paves the way for the final redemption of everything. So that final prayer in Isaiah would be fully answered. It's answered in part now with the inauguration. It will be answered in full with the second coming, which is the consummation. Now, I do know that was a lot of doctrine and theology baked into this text. And when I opened it, you probably thought, five verses, we'll be out of here, you know. And then you're like, oh, we should have known. Look, there's just a lot, a lot, a lot in this text. And and here's what I want to tell you, because you might be thinking, that's a lot of theology and a lot of doctrine. Give me the application, buddy. You can't apply this. You're not the son of God. You're not the Messiah. You're not the servant. You're not the atoner. You're not the bringer of the new heavens and earth. Okay, you can't apply this. Some of us are going to be going to Israel in a couple months. You dipping in the Jordan River is not applying this, okay? You cannot apply this, but you can marvel at the one who this is all about. You could be thankful that Jesus is the one who fully has the Holy Spirit, and he's been pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all who belong to him ever since. And most importantly, you could be ever thankful that he was baptized in that Jordan, that he was baptized for you. What do I mean by that? I'm taking this this first line from Douglas Sean O'Donnell. He put it perfectly. He wrote this. He said, when we go down into the waters of baptism, it is a symbol of the cleansing of our sins. When Jesus went down into the water of the Jordan River, it was the opposite. The opposite happened. He began to take our sin, our dirt, and all the scum of all the baptized, end quote. 
In other words, to, to break that down, when we are baptized, we identify with his perfect sinlessness. We're identifying with him and everything he is. But when he was baptized, he identified with us and everything we are, our guilt, our shame, and our sin. Our baptism with him symbolizes us getting his reward. His baptism, as he identifies with us, symbolizes him getting our penalty. And it's no accident that he speaks of the crucifixion to come as a baptism that he has to undergo. When Jesus went under this water in the Jordan, okay, it prefigured what he was going to do because of our sin. We are baptized into him, but what we fail to realize is one more piece of this fulfill all righteousness is he had to be baptized into us. And because he was baptized into us, he dies our death, but then we get baptized into him and we get his life his eternal life. And so that all starts to be painted right here. He traded places with us so we could be saved. That is part of what he means when he says he will fulfill all righteousness. In fact, all of this is how he fulfills all righteousness. But I want to emphasize this one part, right? That, that his, him identifying with us so we could identify with him is how he makes us righteous. Isaiah 53, 11, where it's talking about the servant of the Lord dying for us. It says, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. And I have it underlined. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. The word justify means to declare righteous. When God says, my righteous servant will justify many, in Hebrew, it's a lot simpler than that. And so I, I got it up there because I know everybody could read Hebrew from right to left. Just kidding. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's yitzdik sadik. It's the same word, just different form. What he's saying literally is my righteous one makes them righteous. My righteous one, the yitzdik will sadiq, the rest of us. He will make us righteous. In other words, Jesus's righteousness gets transferred to us. That's what's in the Hebrew there. He carries our sin and he pays the penalty and he credits us with perfect righteousness. Or to put it this way, to put it the way Paul puts it, which I love quoting this verse as many times as I can. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was righteous and we become his righteousness, because it gets credited to us, and then he takes our sin. That is what's all displayed in Jesus being baptized, okay? That's all there. So that's your application. Be thankful to the Father for loving us so much that he sent Jesus for us. Be thankful to the Son of God for loving us so much that he entered his own creation as a man, as the Messiah, as the Son, as the servant, as the Savior. Be thankful for that, that he died in order to make us righteous, be thankful to the, for, to the Holy Spirit for filling the Son perfectly so that the Son could fulfill his mission, earn the perfect righteousness that could then be credited to us. Be thankful for your salvation because you didn't earn it and you couldn't secure it. It's all from what God did, all three persons of the Trinity working together to save you. If you can't be thankful for that, if you're going to be bummed out and whining about what you don't have in this life, and yet you got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together to save you, you don't know what you have yet. Really come to understand that, think about it, and then love him with everything you got and start serving him. You want to know what this text requires of you? Go tell the lost what God has done for you. Go tell the lost what God has done for you. Tell them what Jesus has done. Tell them who he, who he is. Tell the thirsty where the water of life could be found. 
That's what we should be doing with this. That's the main application, loving God, thanking him, and telling others about it, marveling at him. Now, for anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, simply put, I hope that you've seen a lot in this text of who he is and that the Lord opened your heart and your eyes to understand it, that we are sinners and none of us can fulfill all righteousness. And so all of us will go to hell on our own. And that's what we deserve because we sinned against almighty God. But God so loved the world that he became a man, came down as the Messiah, as the Savior to take our sins into his account, to pay our price, to then give us the credit of his perfect righteousness. And it's all signified in our text today. You simply have to turn away from your sins and trust Jesus, believe on him with all your heart and you'll be saved. So we're gonna pray to close the sermon. And then we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. But as we're praying, you could pray yourself to God. That God, I'm going to turn away from my sins. And I turn to you in faith. I believe everything that your word says. And I trust you with my salvation. If you do that, you'll be saved. And then please, come, talk to me afterwards. Talk to any of the leaders here. I gladly want to answer more questions and walk you through this, um, you know, in a more clear sense. And so, that being said, we're going to pray. And then I'll give the communion warning. And we'll have one more song in the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. This was a complicated word, Lord.